food is perishable, so there's always has been some waste, yes. What's changed is that now we're almost 8 billion people. And also we have transitioned over time from more local to global food systems. This is Dr. Ned Spang, Associate Professor at UC Davis, and you're listening to Red to Green Season 4 on food waste. While researching the topic, it was virtually impossible to overlook the common statistics. We waste 30 to 40 percent of the food that is produced. If food waste would be a nation, it would be the third largest emitter. Why does food waste happen? What are the systemic problems and what can we do to change that? This is what you will find out in this season. Because if we waste food, we waste much more than just the product itself. This is an introduction to food waste. Let's jump right in. This is Red to Green, the audiobook style podcast where food tech meets sustainability. You're listening to season four on food waste. To support our work, please subscribe and share the episodes with your colleagues and friends. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. In conversations, one of the things that I've heard from folks is we've been wasting food for generations throughout history. This is Jesse Horseman, senior producer of the season who joined me for this episode. What makes it more important now to focus on food waste? Why is it a now problem? Yes, we have wasted food. I think it's probably gone sort of up and down over time. I certainly remember stories of my grandmother in the Great Depression. When I was a kid, I'd go visit her. And at the end of dinner, if there were ever any dinner rolls left on the table, she'd throw them right in her purse. And that was because she went through a period of scarcity and her mindset had shifted. And so she valued food and didn't really want to see any waste. And that really stuck with me as a kid because I asked her, why do you always take the bread home? And she explained that story to me. So I don't know if we've always wasted on the same level. Food is perishable. So there's always has been some waste. Yes. What's changed is that now we're almost 8 billion people. So the scale of the entire food system has gotten bigger. And hence, we have those huge numbers when we translate 30% of food being wasted into $1 trillion of economic losses. And also, we have transitioned over time from more local to global food systems. And that's a huge issue there. There's so many logistics involved, and you're moving a perishable item that any time that system doesn't work perfectly, there's going to be some loss and waste. With a more local system, you can get the food from point A to point B much more easily. You have a closer connection to where the food is grown. You might just be used to eating more seasonal food and not having access to strawberries from across the world year round. And you just are kind of used to the season shifting and eating what's local and what's nearby. And so again, less likely to have waste on a very large scale in that kind of situation. So food waste is a big problem, but also a big opportunity. Addressing it offers several benefits at once. It reduces the use of resources, it reduces climate emissions, and it also helps feed a growing population. So over time, we have all these projections of how much more food we're going to need by 2050. And almost all those projections expand out increased production. But if we actually do a better job of distributing the food that we already grow, we don't necessarily have to use that much more land and that much more water, that much more energy to feed a growing population. There's all of those resources embedded in the food, the land, the water, the energy, even the labor and investment 
all of that's really lost if that food is never eaten. And understanding how these are interconnected is what Dr. Ned Spang specializes in. I think I've always been drawn in my research towards really sort of complex issues. So rather than just study water or just study energy, I figured I would kind of see how they're combined in my PhD research. The food system itself is rather complex with a lot of different actors and stages. So we go all the way from farm to fork, but in between we have harvesting, storage, any sort of processing. It passes through the wholesale and retail markets. Of course, each stage requires energy and water use. There's some energy inputs. You can imagine fuel use for tractors to trucks to refrigeration. And water use is really mostly focused on the production side. So we use a lot of water for agriculture, but we use water for washing and cooking food along the supply chain as well. And so what you can do is you can go to any of these facilities. You can go to a farm and start tracking how much water was used this season to grow watermelons, how many watermelons were harvested and start to get to some number of that gallons per watermelon. And really, if that watermelon isn't eaten, then you can start to calculate how much water was allocated to grow watermelons that were never eaten. And you start to get an understanding of some of the environmental costs of food waste. So it's really just doing some of that detective work to go upstream in the food supply chain and start measuring these inputs to the system. And as our food system has become more global, it has become more complex, making it harder to address the issue. We don't often think of our simple sort of food commodities on our table or the meal we're eating, we don't think of the larger system behind it. And it's so complex and actually rather impressive in many ways that we can be eating food from all over the world. But it does come with some of these challenges. And food loss and waste is one of those major challenges of these large, complex global supply chains. So Ned, what kind of size are we talking about? How big is this issue? When it comes to sustainability, is this a must-have on our checklist to not burn down the planet? It is. It's a huge issue. And that's one thing I think that resonates with everybody. The global estimate is about 30% or a third of all food produced is not eventually eaten. It's, it's lost or wasted through at some point along the supply chain. I can put that into context environmentally. For example, about 80% of the water we use on the planet is to grow food. So if a third of the food we grow is lost or wasted, that means a third of that 80% of all the water we use as humans on the planet is also going to products that are never consumed. The Food and Agricultural Organization in the United Nations has sort of translated that $1 trillion per year in economic losses, $700 billion per year in environmental losses or costs, and $900 billion a year in social costs. But those are tremendous numbers. And so while that can be disheartening, and it is, it also represents opportunity. We should take this on as a challenge. And when I say we, I don't just mean academics. I don't just mean politicians or businesses, although everyone has a role, but it's ourselves. We lose or waste food in our homes frequently. And so we can all, just by thinking about this a little bit more, play a role in reducing these monumental numbers. But there is a fundamental psychological issue. We tend to not see the value in what is thrown away. Ned, you spent a lot of time in your research on measurement. What makes measuring this problem particularly difficult? We tend to put a low value on it. So we don't have a lot of motivation to measure something that we don't value. If we even think about it in our homes, as soon as you throw something in the garbage can, it tends to be out of sight, out of mind. We're not really thinking about it as soon as we close that garbage can. And food waste, I think, is the same way. You know, at its highest value, you definitely want to make sure if you grew that tomato that you sold it and that you tracked how much money you got for that. That is very easy to track what enters the marketplace and what is transacted. 
But as soon as it's something of low value that we're just trying to get rid of, we're not as focused on measuring it. Also, the supply chain itself is complicated. So every actor along the way, there is some food loss on the farm. There's food loss at the processor. There's food loss at the grocery store and in our homes. So if you're trying to take a food systems perspective, you have to kind of work with each of those actors to get the full story behind where food is lost and wasted. One final challenge is that people measure it in different ways. We can actually define food loss and waste in different ways. If we're measuring lost corn, for example, are we just measuring weighing the corn kernels on the cob? Are we measuring the whole cob, even though there's parts that are edible and inedible? All of those definitions need to be standardized so that if I look at two different studies and one saying there's 10% loss of corn by weight and another says 20 I need to know what they're actually measuring when they're talking about that weight, whether they're including those inedible parts or just the edible components. And that problem is persistent across the literature. However, we're starting to get better at formalizing this. World Resources Institute has published a food loss and waste measurement protocol. That's exactly what we need, some standards and some frameworks so that we can all agree on how to measure this. One definition that is often unclear is what is food loss versus food waste? I will mainly use the definition of the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. To formulate it a bit less complex, food loss happens at the early stages of the supply chain. It's the decrease in the quantity and quality of food. For example, during production, processing and distribution. Food waste refers to the same thing, but at later stages. So at the retail level, at the food service provider level and at end consumer level. Another aspect is whether this piece of food is considered to be edible or not edible. And this is where it becomes a bit murky. I find that super interesting because whether something is considered food waste or food loss is so cultural. Let's say you have a chicken and the chicken bones are thrown away. Well, is that food loss or food waste? Because there could have been chicken broth made out of it or the cauliflower green leaves. One of the people we're going to have on later during the season is a chef who is really questioning all of these assumptions and what other people would see as something inedible she actually uses to make complete dishes or complete new products out of it, like using the orange peels, uh, using parts of the pineapple, and therefore making also new tastes that weren't possible before. I'm so glad you brought that up. Even if you do a great job sort of standardizing what is and isn't waste, what is edible and what is inedible, the food system is dynamic. And even our tastes as consumers are dynamic. What is considered edible and inedible is especially tricky. That is very challenging because some person might use what another person would consider waste. I remember I went to a, a landfill with people from CalRecycle, which is our waste management agency here in California. And they're trying to do a better job of measuring food waste going to landfill. So they hired a group to go in and at the landfill, cut open bags and start to categorize the food waste. And I was there with the person running the program. And every three or four minutes, they'd kind of come over to where we were observing, hold something up and say, is this edible or inedible? And it would be like a broccoli stock. It's not an obvious answer. A lot of people throw out their broccoli stocks, but you can also just peel those, chop them up and throw them in a stir fry or make a broth with almost any food that hasn't spoiled. I do think chefs can really lead the way on educating their consumers and their patrons about what is possible with some of these materials that we previously wouldn't think about cooking with or eating. 
Yeah, or making businesses out of. Like if a whole business is taking these inedible ingredients, you have a fantastic business model. You're taking something that costs next to nothing and you're making something useful out of it. That's right. And there's there's a couple of good examples of that. I mean, baby carrots were just carrots that were too small, that people weren't used to having, you know, the smaller or the thinner carrot. And so some enterprising processor figured out a way to, you know, peel and kind of chop the carrot in a way and call it baby carrots. And all of a sudden that's everywhere. Cauliflower rice is similar. You know, that cauliflower rice is something I had never heard of five years ago. Now it's everywhere. That can use the interior of the cauliflower stock and you get a whole bunch more nutritious material into the food system. Ned, one thing that I'm struck by whenever I think about food waste is it happens, as you said, along every point in the value chain. And the knock on, you know, energy and water costs seem to accumulate throughout. Is the answer to this actually getting as early on in the food chain as possible to reduce waste? There's going to be low-hanging fruit at each section of the supply chain, and there's opportunity really everywhere. So it's not just picking a certain part of the supply chain and saying, let's just do that. However, the first part of your question is important to remember that as food goes through the food supply chain, it is accruing or accumulating more resource use. That apple on the tree, yes, that requires some land and fertilizer and water and some energy. If it goes back to the soil on the farm, there's a cost to that, but it's not as big as the cost of that apple being picked, transported, washed, refrigerated, both in the truck and at the retailer, brought home, refrigerated at home, and then thrown out because there's a bruise on it. That is a very different scenario than mm. on the farm. The other component of that is on the farm, it's much more likely to end up back in the soil, where as it goes down the food supply chain, it's more likely to end up in a landfill. And so we would prefer for food that is not lost or wasted to return to the soil, return carbon and nutrients to the soil rather than end up in a landfill where ultimately it ends up breaking down and producing methane, which is a potent greenhouse gas. And then finally, at the end of the food supply chain, that is an important place to focus because you are getting the most bang for your buck, so to say, in terms of environmental savings with that apple that you don't discard as a consumer. It's also at its highest economic value with the consumer. What you pay a grower for that apple on the farm is less than what you pay the retailer because you're basically paying for all that transportation, you're paying for the wholesaler, all of that kind of thing. So some focus on the consumer side is definitely very important. Yeah. So when looking into the topic of food waste, one inevitably comes across triangles like various different form of triangles and uh, hierarchies. And yes. one of them is the EPA, the United States Environmental Protection Agency's food recovery hierarchy. Yes. And I would love to hear your opinion on these kind of diagrams. So the food recovery hierarchy describes that the best way to reduce food waste is the source reduction, what we just talked about, reduce the volume of surplus food generated. So don't even produce what's unnecessary. Then you feed hungry people, so donate the extra food. You feed animals, so you divert the food scraps to animal food. Then it's industrial use, providing waste oils, etc., composting. And the last option is landfill or incineration. And there are variations of this where it's more focused on, let's say, also the recycling of food, the upcycling of food is also mentioned. But yeah, how do you see these 
for example, what I just listed to you, would you agree with this hierarchy? Yeah, I think the hierarchy is useful as sort of a learning tool for people that are new to the topic of food loss and waste, and you're just trying to wrap your head around this challenge. Where do we start? Well, prevention is a great place to start because we're not using that land and those resources to begin with. What we're trying to do is produce the right amount of food for the right amount of people. And then trying to rescue food that could be lost. So if there is some surplus, trying to feed people with that surplus, that's certainly a noble and still high value result of the food loss and waste. And then going stepwise through animals to industrial products, to compost, and then eventually incineration and landfill, that all makes sense. I think the challenge with that is that some of the complexity is lost. So it's kind of elegance is in its simplicity. It conveys some important notions about solutions to food loss and waste. But certainly there can be multiple solutions at the same time, or what's considered lower on the hierarchy might be a higher value solution. There's some way to extract a high value product out of some residue from a processing system. And even though you could feed that residue to people, it actually has a high value in terms of some industrial extraction. This might not be the best example of something that would feed people, but we have a winery on campus here at UC Davis, and we have the grape pomace that's left after pressing the grapes for wine. And we can sort of incorporate that into animal feed, but we can also extract some important industrial compounds out of that. So there's anthocyanins, which are basically antioxidants that can be used. You can extract materials for dye. And actually, you, once you extract that stuff, you still have a lot of material left over that could then probably still go to animal feed, right? We call this next step, this the idea of a biorefinery where we start with a material that was previously considered waste, uh, some organic waste, and we're trying to look at it as a resource. And we want to cascade it through a series of processes to get the highest value materials out of it, but then still treat any residues according to the hierarchy. So if there's a way to feed animals, great. If not, let's try throw it in an anaerobic digester and try to make some biogas, or let's turn it into compost. But certainly let's not have any of that material go to incineration or, or landfill if we can help it. You just talked about not oversimplifying it, right? So right. let me counteract that with a question for oversimplification. Sure. <laughs> so the 80-20 Pareto principle. So 80% of the results come from 20% of the efforts. So I'm wondering if you look at the whole thing, and I know there have been reports on this, like for example, Refed did a report even putting numbers on that. But I would love to hear your perspective on what are the 20% of efforts that we could do that would have 80% of the results? That's a great question. I think I'm going to sort of translate that into what I think is the most important thing that will have the biggest impact, which is what you're saying, but it's more of a long run solution. It's not right away, which is we need to be teaching kids about the food system. Really, everyone needs to grow up understanding how food gets on their plate. And if they start to appreciate the amount of efforts and the amount of people and the amount of environmental resources that are allocated to feed us, I think that does translate into behavior change in the long run. It can even be in the short run. I mean, you tell kids a good idea, they'll go home and tell their parents and that household might change how they're managing food. But truly in the long run, I think this is the kind of thing folks need to be thinking about. It needs to be internalized and that can really translate not just into the consumer behavior, but that might get more students interested in looking for jobs in the food system and really trying to tackle these questions in a big way. I, I just feel like that's lacking in our current educational system. And I do think there'd be a lot of spillover benefits. 
if I look back to how combating smoking was so effective by bringing that into schools and kids going home and telling their parents they shouldn't smoke, that kind of thing. So I think food waste and understanding food systems is the next big shift in how we can really use our educational system to have behavior change at a large scale. As far as other solutions across the supply chain, another big solution that will take time and coordination is just better information systems. In many sectors of the economy, we have incredible amounts of information, real-time data. However, the food system, I think, is still a little behind and still relying on a lot of sort of analog systems, phone calls from a grower to a contractor to come pick something up. And I think there's a lot of room for innovation there. Like a single app's not going to save the day. It's going to take multiple systems going into place. But once we start to have more of the food system digitized, there's going to be some huge benefits overlaying all of that when the data is interconnected. And so we can have a better understanding of how weather affected a crop that we were going to order at our grocery store and balance out the supply and demand so that there's less surplus. So those are less specific solutions, but I think they're probably the biggest solutions that we're going to see changing food loss and waste in a big way in the next 10 to 15 years if we can really start now implementing those changes. The question I'm about to ask might be slightly controversial, but I would love to know your perspective on the sell-by, use-by, the various dating systems of food and how they may contribute to waste and how that might be potentially an opportunity for education. Yes. And I think Refed had that highlighted as sort of a low cost, high benefit solution. Because first of all, that happens with the consumer where you kind of take your yogurt, spin it around and look at your best buy date before you take a bite out of it. The key challenge here to remember is that on that date, the food doesn't go bad. That's not what that's telling you. What that date reflects is the producer's best estimate of how long they can guarantee the quality of the food. So just because you might be a day past the expiration date on your yogurt, it might still be 100% perfectly good. And actually, I, I do encourage people and my students to just use your eyes, use your nose, look at your food. And if it looks and appears fine, you're probably good to go. And there's a few things we want to be careful of. And there's food safety rules, such as leaving food that needs to be refrigerated out for four hours between 40 and 140 degrees. That's not a good idea. That's when you have bacterial growth and everything. But for expiration dates, we really just need to understand as a consumer that the food hasn't gone bad on that date and that you can still eat that food. I wonder how different that is if you look at different regions around the world. In my research, I found that the topic of household consumer waste is highly influenced by how wealthy people are. And If you look at, let's say, emerging economies, their issues are more located in the production area. So their farming and their production mechanisms are not yet that lean and efficient. Therefore, there's much more food wasted in the earlier stages of the supply chain. And then if you look at, well, the Western world, it's people buying their food and it rotting in their fridge. That is half of the issue. So whatever you found out in that area. Yeah, I, I do think you could find certainly plenty of examples of waste even in lower income countries because of a lack of refrigeration in the home or, or something like that. However, if we kind of take the microeconomic perspective and you have a certain amount of money as your income and food takes up 60% of your income, you're going to be a lot more careful about what you buy and you're going to be much more likely to eat that food. If you're in a wealthier country or a wealthier individual where food is 2% of your income, 
it's easier to understand how you might overpurchase or you might not value the food as much. And if you don't feel like eating something or you aren't paying attention and it goes bad, you'd be more likely to just not pay as much attention and, and let things go bad, not intentionally, but just because it's not as important to you that you're going to have some more food waste in the home. So I think that overall concept holds, but we actually don't have a lot of great data on household food waste in lower income countries. So that that's one place where we really could use more data, but it's expensive to do these types of study. And so far, the resources really haven't been allocated for those studies on a large scale. Okay, let's look at a different piece of the issue, plastic waste. Packaging accounts for about 40% of plastic usage and about half of that is single-use plastic, regularly used for food items. So when we talk about food waste, we also need to consider all the packaging that has been used for food that was never ever consumed. And the combination of plastic and food makes recycling and composting so much harder. There's a lot more commingled materials now in the food system. So maybe it was you'd go to your butcher and get your meat wrapped in paper. And if you have some bones or something left over, you wrap it up in the paper and you throw it away, that's still compostable. So you might even put it in your back garden, some of that stuff. So now we have massive waste treatment systems. We have massive amounts of packaging all that stuff is mixed up. It's hard to separate the organic from the inorganic, which is really preventing a lot of this, directing it back to the soil and the agricultural system. If we can really get some good mechanical fixes to separate the organic from inorganic material, I think that would play a huge role. Yeah, so I'm very excited when we touch upon topics of other seasons that we've had because ah, oh, everything's interconnected. I love it. <laughs> That's the purpose of why we're doing this. <laughs> and yeah, so in the season two that we did on plastic alternatives, pretty much my main takeaway was that it's so ironic. We are packaging our food. We're talking by definition about perishable items in packaging that is meant to last forever. And the irony is that there's this argument, well, but you can just recycle it. But in general, that usually doesn't work too well for food items because it's usually covered in food. We have this contradiction of the, the qualities of our packaging and the qualities of our food. And it would make so much more sense to have like a tax or a higher price on packaging because then people wouldn't use the gold standard, which is what plastic packaging is. I hope we can have a real technological breakthrough in material science where we can develop a, a really excellent bio-based plastic that matches the durability of regular plastic, but matches the duration of the food it's protecting. You know, And obviously you want it to exceed it a little bit. You don't want it to instantly break down as soon as you eat the food, but it has to be on the same time scale. And right now, basically... Plastics last forever and the food is around for weeks or days or, or even hours in the case of takeout. So that, that's a huge opportunity for innovation. So I have some ending questions for you. So Ned, what's one thing you do in your home to reduce food waste? I do a few things actually. One is that I actually do most of the cooking in my house. And so I think kind of planning out your meals ahead of time is really important. That's where you don't end up mm. with all sorts of ingredients in case you want to cook anything at any time. 
that's where you lose a lot of the food in the home. And then finally, I think this is one I'm, I'm not particularly proud of is that I think about this so much that like I have two children, they're not the best at always finishing their plate. So I end up finishing their plate, especially in restaurants. But then that's not necessarily the best solution because I think I've probably put on a few pounds in terms of <laughs> making sure I'm finishing my kids' plates in restaurants. If you had 50 million to invest in a business to solve the food waste problem, where would you invest or what kind of business would you start? As you know, my top solution is education, but that's not the greatest business return on investment. I think there is a business return on investment for data analytics in the food system. And we're starting to see that there are really creative people out there coming up with solutions to improve transactions, enable transactions between, for example, growers who have surplus, any sort of local retail markets, or even food banks that can take that surplus on. And again, that has to be dynamic because at certain times, those retailers or the food banks have storage space, at certain times they don't. So the faster they can have that communication about what's available, the more likely you can do that transaction before the food spoils. Another example would be having more sophisticated inventory management and ordering at the retail level. Sometimes that is a person who's just kind of walking around and checking supplies and making an order or anticipating certain parts of the season. And I don't think we're leveraging that information yet. And I do think there's a strong return on investment that can be a great way to redirect food to a higher value use. And there certainly is an economic return there. Well, spoiler alert. Oh, wait, that's a pun. <laughs> that was not intended, actually. We will have a company on called Afresh, and they are working on exactly that, predicting what consumers will want to help retailers order the right amount of fresh produce at the right time. Check out the upcoming episodes. It's a really good one looking behind the scenes of retailers. Regarding food sustainability and agriculture, what is one unusual or controversial opinion that you hold that many would disagree with? I, I just know that when I teach a class on food loss and waste, I, I usually leave the class a little bit thinking about the fact that, yes, there's solutions and this is a huge issue, but we have to remember that there's always going to be some food waste. And I think my students get all excited about the solutions and they're like, we're going to solve this problem and there will be zero food waste. I don't think that that's possible and that some loss and waste is economically efficient. And what I mean by that is that to get that final 5% of food loss and waste that occurs requires so much more investment that it just doesn't really make sense. And so we have to understand the fact that there's always going to be some loss and waste and that we just need to be prepared to manage that material that isn't eaten in the best way possible. And so we have that food recovery hierarchy. And I do think we can get to zero waste in terms of avoiding all food waste from landfill, but that is still a little bit challenging. We have to have the consumer behavior change to compost every time they're eating. And we have to have that material science improvement so that what we're wrapping the food in can also be thrown in compost. And that will get us probably to 99%. I still think that last 1% is always challenging. How can our listeners connect with you? Well, I'm available. You can look me up online. I'm at, you know, Associate Professor of Food Science and Technology at UC Davis. You can feel free to email me. I'd be happy to chat about this issue or interact at some point. That's where you can find me. Ned, it was a pleasure to have you on Red Degree. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for listening. When I first started Red to Green, I was amazed. Wow, this is so much work. And it's made possible by a dedicated, smart ninja team. If you enjoy our work, please take a minute to share it online, send it to friends or colleagues who would appreciate the episodes. Let's spread the message and let's move the food industry from harmful 
to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.